Welcome to another home-cooked edition of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. As we did last week, we're recording this several miles apart. But politics moves on, and so do we. We'll analyze a campaign ad that hit the airwaves last week and discuss what's changed in the campaign world over the past week. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look... House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But up first, it's Rose Jim. Thank you, Kyle. Jerose Jim, my number of the week is 57.2 million. That's the total number of voters who voted early, absentee, or by mail in the 2016 election, according to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. That's about two out of every five ballots and more than twice as many who voted in that fashion in 2004. In 16 states, more than 50% of ballots in the 2016 election were cast via early mail and absentee voting. This includes the five states that, as of the 2020 election, are conducting all elections entirely by mail, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, and Utah. That's according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. So we've had a gradual decline in the number of people who cast their ballots on a voting machine at a polling place on Election Day, though the coronavirus pandemic has fueled calls for proposals to make it easier to vote other than in person at a polling place with a bunch of other people, including poll workers, who are in very close proximity with hundreds of voters. And as we approach the November election, we'll hear a lot more about proposals that would facilitate more voting early, absentee, and by mail. We'll talk more about that a little bit later in the program. So Jero's Gem, 57.2 million, the number of people who voted early, absentee, or by mail in 2016. I think you're right. We'll definitely be hearing a lot more about that. All right, up next, let's listen to one of the first coronavirus-specific campaign ads we've seen. The coronavirus will test our nation in many ways. It represents a threat to the health of our people and our economy comparable to 9-11. As your senator, I'll be devoting the majority of my time to this new challenge, suspending traditional campaign events. I'm Susan Collins, and I approve this message because in times like this, we must work together. That was an ad from Senator Susan Collins, a Maine Republican who is one of the year's most vulnerable incumbents. Greg, what did you hear? Yeah, Cal, this is more of a public service announcement ad from a legislator and candidate for re-election rather than a you know, more traditional campaign television advertisement, which you know more often than not tout that person's record in office or positions on the issues or even a sales or contrasts issue positions with their opponent. Um, and Susan Collins, uh, who's up for re-election this November, has been, had begun engaging with her likely Democratic opponent, Maine State House Speaker Sarah Gideon. Uh, in this case, though, Collins is looking straight to camera, which I think tries to help convey the seriousness of the message. And she says that the coronavirus, quote, represents a threat to the health of our people and our economy comparable to 9-11, almost 20 years ago. So I'd expect some more candidates to do this, air some ads that maybe remind uh, people about the seriousness of what's going on, and also maybe just wash their hands, maintain physical distance, and to uh, encourage viewers to give blood or donate to charities or even give to uh, help their small businesses in their communities that are really hurting during this, uh, during this uh, crisis, Kyle. 
And it seems like the kind of ad that can remind voters what they liked about her. You know, even Democrats, uh, independents, you know, what, you know, why they voted for her, even if she wasn't, uh, even if they weren't Republicans, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think one of Collins's appeals, at least the first, uh, you know, four elections she's won has been her ability to kind of be above the partisan fray. She's always uh, done quite well in her elections, won support from uh, not only Republicans, but independents and some Democrats. And um, yeah, I think, um, you know, looking straight to camera and trying to, uh, you know, sometimes just like the, the president has a job as being the consoler in chief, um, trying to rally, you know, rally your in chief, you know, that sort of role. So do so do uh, senators and House members who are very well known in their local communities. They have that role, too, to try and, uh, you know, just console the public and encourage them that, um, you know, going through some tough times. But uh, if we all work together, uh, things will be better. Yeah. And, and, you know, Dan Balls wrote in The Washington Post over the weekend um, uh, about all these governors, right, all of a sudden looking very, you know, smart and strong in the face of this very difficult time. And he, he his the point of his column was, you know, this is why a lot of governors were elected president. Um, you know, they've sort of showed um, how they can be above the partisan fray, as you just mentioned, um, Susan Collins is trying to do here once again. So it's kind of all related. And, um And so, yeah, I think we'll be seeing more of these ads in the coming weeks. Um, All right. Well, after the break, we'll talk about some big changes on the campaign front. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. We're recording this Monday morning, and the campaign world has seen some abrupt changes over the past week. The most jarring is the sudden absence of a presidential campaign, which has been in all our faces for at least a year now. And like the postponement of professional sports, we've seen several elections being pushed down the calendar. It seemed like every day last week, another state was bumping its primary date. Greg, what's the latest there? Yeah, this is really in flux, the election schedule. States, as you mentioned, are are moving their primaries later in the spring and the summer. Um, Let's review just some of those changes. Pennsylvania was just revealed uh, today, and we're speaking on Monday, as you mentioned, moving their primaries from April the 28th until June the 2nd. Looks like that's going to be enacted by the legislature this week. In Alabama, Republican runoff elections for the Senate and for a couple of congressional districts have been moved uh, from March 31st all the way to July the 14th, so in the summer. Indiana primaries that were scheduled for May the 5th have been moved to June the 2nd. You've got some House primaries there worth watching in Indiana's 1st District uh, and in Indiana's 5th District in and around Indianapolis. Uh, North Carolina, the 11th congressional district of Mark Meadows, who's retiring, there's a Republican runoff there that should have been on May the 12th. That's been moved to June the 23rd. In Texas, you're supposed to have some runoffs on May the 26th. They have been postponed to July the 14th. Of note, there is a Democratic Senate runoff between M.J. Hager and State Senator Royce West for the right to see who would go up against Republican Senator John Cornyn. This uh, delay will also affect some Republican runoffs in some House districts. And in Maryland, the congressional and presidential primaries were moved from April the 28th to June the 2nd, although the 7th Congressional District special election to fill the unexpired term of the late Elijah Cummings in Baltimore will be converted to a vote-by-mail election that will stay on April the 28th. Uh, Former Representative Kwaizi Mafume is strongly favored to win that election. 
So it's very much a developing story, Kyle. You've got some other states that have moved uh, their presidential primaries, but uh, not their congressional primaries, because in some states they're held on separate dates. But um, basically we have a kind of a bigger hole in the spring schedule right now. We don't have the next congressional primaries uh, until May the 12th in uh, Nebraska and West Virginia. And uh, those states haven't talked yet about delaying those primaries, but state election officials there are encouraging their voters to cast ballots absentee and by mail, Kyle. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We sort of hit this hole in the primary calendar anyway, right? There weren't a lot of congressional primaries coming up anyways until late April, but I think it's telling that a lot of the states, even in late April, things happening in early May, those are getting pushed. And that tells you what a lot of states are preparing for in terms of how long this is going to last, um, how long this is going to be part of our lives. You know, I've got kids. I still don't know when my kids are going back to school. Uh, I'm home with them right now. Um, and uh, when every time someone pushes a primary date, I, I get a little more nervous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got, um, you know, the only primaries before all this happened that were on tap, I think, were the the Alabama Republican Senate runoff, March the 31st, that's supposed to be a week from tomorrow, involving Jeff Sessions, the former senator and former attorney general. Um, he was in a very tough race with Tommy Tuberville, still is, but we'll have to wait a few more months for the uh, disposition of that primary. All right, so you mentioned this earlier, but there's also been calls, particularly from Democrats, to expand voting by mail in the November elections. Ron Wyden and Amy Klobuchar introduced a bill last week that would require states to allow all voters to vote by mail. Uh, this obviously makes some sense for social distancing, right? But it, it, it's not clear that this is going to go anywhere. Yeah, it, it's not clear at all. And I think um, getting a nationwide, uh, you know, a bill that would apply to uh, all states would be still a very tough lift, even though you have seven and a half months left. It does take a lot of time to put the infrastructure in place to get a national vote by mail system and you need to have the infrastructure to you know say have the printing capacity for example or have enough envelope sorting machines you need to be able to verify you know valid addresses and have accurate voter rolls you need to have safeguards for tracking ballots and make sure you have rules that ensure a proper chain of custody for all these ballots you're intending to mail to all these people. You need to be able to verify voter signatures and give voters, um, if there's like some sort of conflict, you have to give voters some opportunity to, you know, say, hey, that's really me. Um, the earlier you set up the rules for an election, the more time people can prepare for it and the less likely it's going to get caught up in the kind of the vortex of partisan politics. But we've seen even before this crisis, Kyle, that, um, you know, changes to election procedure, they, they, they don't really galvanize the public all that much, and they, they, they've often come to a kind of ground to a halt, uh, victim to partisan politics in the Congress. It's not clear to me they can pass this bill uh, even before the November election, although we're seeing um, that this coronavirus crisis has really fueled calls to at least making voting easier, whether it be um, more mail ballots, but also extending the um, no-excuse absentee voting. Not all states have no-excuse absentee voting, and um, you know, allowing maybe for same-day voter registration. So we'll hear more about this, except it, it might be more in the states rather than at the national level. I'm just not sure yet if we're going to get you could get a big bill like the bill proposed by Klobuchar and Wyden enacted uh, in time to prepare for the election. And, you know, now we're even seeing uh, the Senate talking about remote voting for themselves. Uh, you know, Senator Rand Paul tested positive for coronavirus. Um, and, you know, he's been around a lot of other senators. And there's not everyone who's going to 
not everyone is going to be there today for some big votes on this on this stimulus. So um, they're talking about remote voting even under the dome. Yeah, that's right. You have five Republican senators at last count, and we're speaking on a Monday afternoon, uh, midday. And um, yeah, you had that vote uh, yesterday yesterday in the Senate uh, to advance the. Uh, uh, the the phase, so-called phase three coronavirus bill failed on a uh, 47 to 47 procedural vote. We had five Republicans uh, absent. Um, you mentioned uh, Senator Paul, of course. And um, again, a developing story. We could have more members of Congress and more senators um, self-quarantine or um, even announce that they have been infected as well. We just don't know. That's going to affect the congressional schedule as well. And we've heard, heard calls for remote voting over on the House side as well. Congresswoman Katie Porter of California has proposed a remote voting plan as well. Uh, but in the uh, kind of tradition-laden uh, Congress, it's hard to see how they do that. I think it's more likely that they'll spread out the time to vote or uh, just maybe restrict the number of people who tend to huddle in the wells of the House and the Senate when these votes are going on. All right, well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. That's right, it's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But first, let's review last week's question. I asked for how long in years has someone with the surname Dingle served in Congress, referring to the Michigan Democratic family. I want to note I prefaced that question by noting that someone with the surname Lipinski had represented Illinois for 37 years, a streak that will end next January after eight-term Democratic Congressman Dan Lipinski's defeat for re-election in a primary last week. But as to the Dingle question, Kyle, do you know how many years a Dingle has served in Congress? I'm going to go with, and this is an educated guess, but I'm going to go with 85 years. Okay, exceptionally close. It is actually 87. Um, oh. Very, very close. I'll, if I grade it on a curve, and I think I will because I'm feeling generous today, <laughs> I, think I'll, I think I'll give you the, uh, the margin of error there of a couple of <laughs> years. Uh, so it started with John Dingell Sr., who entered the House in 1933 at the start of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration. He served until his death in September of 1955. And that December, he was succeeded by his son, John Dingell Jr., who served for a record 59-plus years. John Dingell retired at the end of 2014 and was succeeded by his wife, Debbie Dingell, who continues to serve today. John Dingell passed away in February of 2019. Now, to this week's question. In the Jero's Gems segment at the start of this program, I identified the five states that, as of 2020, conduct their elections entirely by mail. Question... Which was the first state to conduct elections entirely by mail? Ooh. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's program. All right, that's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Well, I think this week I'm going to be watching the continued coronavirus uh, phase three negotiations uh, going on in the Senate and the House. Uh, the, the, the Senate, uh, as we speak, Monday midday was planning to come in, and uh, we'll see if those uh, the Republican-led Senate and the Democratic-led House can agree uh, on a, a phase three co- coronavirus uh, rescue package for individuals and small businesses. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, also sought the Democratic presidential nomination, and he endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. 
And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.